0: We pray that you'd illumine our minds this evening, keep us from being sluggish, help us to leave not only better informed about your word, but in in love more with your word. Help us, Father, give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness that would take us through this week. Pray that you'd make us such that the only thing that would satisfy us is your presence. That we might not just long to know about you, but long to know you, the one true God, and your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. This we ask in his name. Amen. Disaster and deity. Well, you see... I. Probably by the time I finished reading, uh, the, the text is about disaster. A disaster has fallen. And as we saw, if you've been here the last two Sunday evenings, as we've considered Psalm 73, the first book in, or the first chapter in book three of the Psalter, you know that disaster is an overriding theme of this section of Psalms. And so it shouldn't surprise you that, that it's here in this chapter. The occasion, if you've noticed, something has been destroyed. Something has been torn down. Namely, the meeting place. We'll come back to that in a moment. But I want you, I want you just to imagine for a moment. I was, again, this week listening to someone, and uh, he was just talking about... Um, a friend of mine talking about perhaps buying a family uh, home. It's a location over in North Carolina where this family has gathered for generations. Uh, Family gathers there for all sorts of family events, for weddings, for funerals, for, uh, for birthdays, you know. Just any opportunity they have to gather as a family, they go over and they meet in this family home that dates back, as I said, generations. And he was just saying that he, he thought he might just buy it to keep it in the family, to be sure that it doesn't pass out of the family. It'd be a shame, he said, for it to fall into the hands of someone other. Now, he wasn't meaning that another family was necessarily bad, he just meant it's a shame, after all these years, that it falls out of the family. So he's thinking about buying it. And I was just that made me think, well, what about family homes? Some of you may have experienced this, homes where you grew up, maybe your grandparents lived there, maybe great-grandparents, and it's just a place where the family gathered, and you just always did. That's where you go as a family. And then it's gone. Yeah, it can be a fire. Our family home in Alabama was, was destroyed by fire a few years ago and uh, lost a lot of the, the, the furniture that had come down through the, through the generations. And uh, it was sad. It was not a terribly old dwelling. But attached to it were a lot of fond memories. And you can imagine, yeah, I go and take groups to these great old church buildings and. South Carolina, uh, one dating back to 1719, the oldest Presbyterian church building in the United States. It's a beautiful frame structure sitting out on Bohickett Road on John's Island. And I, every time I go, I rehearse. You know, the American Revolution, the British troops came onto John's Island was one of, the, one of their entry points. They camped here, they used this church building as a stable for their horses. Uh, they, they had bonfires built all around it. It's remarkable that it's still there. You think of all the hurricanes. Then the, Brit- the uh, northern troops came in to John's Island. They camped in it. They built fires all around it. They stabled their horses in it. Hurricanes, tornadoes, you name it. And there that building stands. And every time I rehearse that, there's always some folks from that local church present as I give some of the history, some of the old history. George Whitfield preached there, et cetera, et cetera. Some of the great Presbyterians that have preached there. Some of the great works of God that have taken place there. And almost always, when I mention, you know, just amazing how it's been preserved all these years, and they all go, shh, as if, you know, don't let God know He might destroy it or something. I don't know what the sh is. But uh, how sad these generations of people who have worshipped there and their parents worshipped there and I go in there, and there there are multiple generations of family that worship in that church every Lord's Day. The same family names that you find related to that church and its founding in 1710 are still in that church. Loyal perhaps to a fault sometimes but loyal to their local church. and. That building has a lot of sentiment to it. They've, they've seen a lot in that building. Just think about that. And then what an effect disaster if a hurricane, if a fire were to destroy it. Well, Psalm 74 is Asaph lamenting the destruction of something far more significant than a family home perhaps or even an old church building. It was the temple, it was the meeting place, it was Mount Zion, it was God, if you will, God's residence on earth. And so he's seeing it happen, he's seen it happen. Now that gives us some idea, and the commentators generally agree on this, that this is Asaph relating the state of Judah after the destruction of the temple and the holy city by the Babylonians. And this is described for us in Jeremiah 52. And let me read you just a a little bit of Jeremiah 52. Uh, You can pick up reading in verse 12 of that chapter if you want to read the full account. But here's what a part of what we read. In the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And so, as Derek Kidner says, this would would mark the psalm as being within a lifetime at the most after the events of 587. So now, let me just put this in perspective. This psalm's being written sometime later than some that are written by David. We've commented on that. They don't all date from the same period historically, but they're all from that period of time. Here, recounting the events, the sad events of, of 587 most likely and what Jeremiah has described. And the people of God, just in reading Asaph's response, they're devastated. Um, here's the deal. And it, it's, a bit of, it's a good reminder for us. When you read Asaph here, you, you get something of a sense that these people had all their hopes and all their dreams and even the promises of God seemed in some sense too closely linked to the physical Jerusalem because as he talks here he's 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 as we would say he's down in the dumps he's pretty low this is what's happened And I wonder sometimes with, with Asaph and others if, if, if they're not sometimes. And keep in mind, God used these men. He took them with, with I mean, He's not dictating to them their emotions. He's not changing their, their emotions to suit His purposes. He's using those to convey to us. Asaph would have been good if Asaph had had the mindset of, of Abraham not been looking at a physical thing but looking beyond the physical thing. But in it, as it is, we learn some really good lessons from Asaph during this time. And that's what I want us to be fixed upon. Because even in their devastation and the chaos and the, 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 either the, the immediate happenings after the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, or in those subsequent uh, that next generation, perhaps as uh, some would suggest. Well, here's what I want to see. I want us to see first, just as we've seen before, uh, the honesty that's, uh, that's seen here, and the 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 importance of honest reflections. You don't get, and I've said this a number of times. Please, I hope by now you're learning this lesson with me. There's nothing wrong with us being honest about our emotions, our feelings, and the honest reflection here that he cast upon this. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? I mean, these are, these are important questions and they're honest questions. These are not speculative questions. You know, you you hear sometimes people raise questions. Usually they're trying to redirect, you know, trying to get us off track, aren't they, when they ask these questions. Well, you know, if God's all-powerful and God can do all things, you know, could could He ever make a rock that's too big for Him to lift? Or another one that's often joked and it comes out of the rabbinical period is, you know, how many angels can perch on the head of a needle. Well, those are all just diversions. Those are are questions speculative in nature to to move you away from serious, important, heart-searching questions. But these aren't. I mean, these are heart-searching. These are honest reflections, honest questions that Asaph's asking. We saw it with David. We've seen it with all the various writers in the Psalms. They ask the hard questions. They're willing just to stop and be honest and let let their emotions be seen. And so he asks honest questions. He also, we see here in his honest reflections, we see he he, making his desires known. He calls on God to remember his covenant. Verse 2, remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. He's calling upon God. So he asks the hard questions, he asks the honest questions, and he also makes honest petition of the Lord. You know, Lord, we need you. We need you to be here in the midst of this. So that's the first thing. Just the honesty of his concerns. Honest reflections. And then the next thing I want you to see, verses 4 through 8, historical recollections. He, He goes back. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes. So he goes through and he recounts what these people have done. They said, We will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. So Asaph simply rehearses before God the events that led up to this prayer. It's not that God didn't know. And Doug Kelly's wonderful little book, If God Knows, Why Pray? If God already knows, why pray? Well, because God likes to hear your voice. He likes to know that you know that you're dependent on Him. And sometimes we need to pray to remind ourselves that we know we're dependent upon Him. And so, historical recollections. They took their axes and sledgehammers to the buildings, verse 6 says. Then they set fire to it, verse 7. Uh, They set your sanctuary on fire. They profane. There he's using the imagery of the, the profaning the temple, offering strange fire in the temple. So he picks up on that imagery of something God has forbidden back early in the Mosaic context in the giving of the ceremonies. Don't offer. You can only offer the kind of fire, the incense that I have prescribed. We're back to this regulated, this idea of regulated worship. God tells us how he wants to be worshiped. In the Old Testament it's very strict, it's very strong, it's very detailed. Thankfully under the New Covenant it's not nearly as detailed. Still just as strict, but not nearly as detailed. But here he's, he's making this historical recollection, he's drawing back on not only what they've done but what that has to do with what God has said in the past. And so they set your sanctuary on fire. And by doing so, they offered strange fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name. Now, for this reason, this verse has caused some commentators to think that this, this chapter may actually have been written much later into the what we call the intertestamental period, after the cessation of the prophetic voice. And another verse that picks up on that is... In verse 9, there is no longer any prophet and there is none among us who knows how long. And so they've said, well this must have been much considerably later. After the writing of the Old Testament, this one would have been added back. But there's no reason to think that unless you just have a certain uh, predisposition to that which, which is no reason for it. Here, what he's saying is, is that... Uh, they, the Babylonians, did this. And by doing so, they profaned what God had made holy. They did what God had forbidden them to do. And so there's a sense here, as I said, they burned false forbidden incense. Notice in verse uh, 4 also something else important. It says, "...your foes have roared in, your, in the midst of your meeting place." They set up their own signs for signs. Now you have to understand what what Asaph is, is saying here is that as he offers this historical recollection, he's saying they have set themselves up as God. This was God's city. The temple was God's place where God met with his people. God had placed his signs in there. What did the signs, what did they, What were they about? They were emblematic. They represented His sovereignty. Circumcision, for instance. God's sovereignty over you. He set you apart. The sign has been placed upon you. The bow in the sky. God is the covenantal God who is in control of all of nature... And he he sent the flood, and he has said, I won't ever do this again. There will be seasons forever. Why? Because I said so. I'm the sovereign. This is my realm. I control it. Those signs spoke of his sovereign control. And these Babylonians came in, and they did away with God's signs that represented his sovereignty. And they said, no, we're sovereign. We're God." in this town now. This is ours. And Asaph realizes this is not good. You don't get the sense though do you that he's necessarily angry. He's heartbroken. That God's sovereignty has been challenged. And as I, as I, I was thinking about this I just thought you know I I'll have to be honest I tend to just I tend to get mad about this when people play God and put themselves in God's place. And I want, it, it doesn't make me as sad as it does mad. It doesn't break my heart as much as it makes me sin in my heart. But Asaph, you, you pick up on this that he's genuinely heartbroken over this. They've, they've usurped your place, Lord. They've. they've They proclaim themselves to be God. And so in his recollections, in his historical musings here, he he recognizes this. In these few brief sentences, 4 through 8, Asaph paints an abysmal picture and sets forth the unrighteousness of the world how the world loves to exert its sovereignty and we have to be honest don't we we tend to do that too isn't that isn't that part of the great struggle in the in the Christian life is the battle over God's sovereignty and our individual sovereignty I mean don't don't we just love to stand up and proudly proclaim my freedom of the will I'm a free moral agent, after all. Well, all that may be true, but you're not God. And to assert your sovereignty is to, is to defy the one true God. And, and we see ourselves doing this. We see it in a lot of ways. We have to repent of that. We're no better, if we don't repent of that, we're no better than the Babylonians. So we have to hate that in ourselves, we have to fight against it uh, in, our, in our own lives, and we have to flee from it. We have to always be mindful of what's happened in the past and what will happen again. Right? I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. I was reminded of William Faulkner's words that haunt me the past is never dead, it's not even past. The past is never dead, it's not even past. It's not, e- it's, it's not even, it's, it's never dead, it's not even past. Requiem for a nun, if you wanna know where that came from. I wanna go read some good Faulkner sometime. Well, we've got the historical recollections We saw the honest reflections first. Now notice verses 9 through 11. All of a sudden you've got this, what I've termed, horrific realization here. Verses 9 through 11, we do not see our signs. There's nothing. It's all gone. There is no longer any prophet. There's none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Again, we get these these honest reflections, but there's there's that horrific realization that God needs to speak up. It's almost like God's gone quiet on them. Well, in fact, he had. And I was thinking as as I read this and prepared for it that you know when you think about no voice of God, no voice being spoken that, that rightly represents God's point of view, God's position and uh, and it, it made me wonder if, if perhaps we live in a time where in large degree uh, we find ourselves in this kind of situation. Uh, And I, I don't mean that I'm suggesting that there are prophets alive today speaking God's revelatory word to people. But there's that other prophetic sense of men speaking God's word clearly and plainly and loudly and calling men to account. Saying, that's Babylon, that's wrong. They've usurped the authority of God. They can't do that. They shouldn't do that. That's sin. And we, we live in an age where much of the preaching of our day is reminiscent more of what Paul said would come in the last days. He described it this way. He says, the time's coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded into your suffering. Do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry. We as the church have to speak the words of biblical realism. What's biblical realism? Well, Paul goes on to say what it is there in that same passage. Reproving, rebuking, correcting exhorting, teaching. And I would say that in our land today, much of that which goes under the label of preaching is almost exclusively exhorting or encouraging. And while that's a part of what God calls us to do and part of what he defines as proper biblical preaching, it's not all of it. And it's like most truths. When you only get partial truth, you don't have enough to really know what you're supposed to do. And so you're deceived in great details. And so we need to be encouraging. And, and you know, we need, to, we need to be encouraged when we do hear people preach. And when they do call sin, sin... Yes, it's difficult. It's sometimes uncomfortable to sit and hear a, a pastor and a preacher uh, speak against someone. I'm just relating. I won't tell the whole story, but a report of a presbytery determined not to be received because it named names. I hope in your mind you're thinking, well, what would be wrong with naming names if somebody was at fault, if somebody needed correcting, if somebody needed rebuking, if, if, if the Presbytery needed to help these people, wouldn't you have to know names? And the answer, of course, is yes. But we live in, a, in an age where, oh, that's critical, that's negative, that may harm someone. Well, in this case, it harmed people not to name names. But we do. We live in that kind of age. And I want you to develop a nice tough skin to where you say, you know, yeah, we needed that rebuke. Yeah, we needed that correction. And also to always know that, well, you know, that finger might not have been pointing at me. It may have been pointing past me, so I'm not going to take it personally, although I probably needed it anyway. Asaph is lamenting the fact that there's no longer any prophet. There's none among us who knows how long. There's nobody willing to reprove and rebuke. There's no one speaking authoritatively for the Lord. We heard a sermon in, a, in a, one of the historic uh, Presbyterian buildings of this land a few years ago with some friends, Carol and I, and when it was over, We were sitting having a picnic lunch we'd prepared uh, the night before and enjoying a beautiful day in a beautiful context. And I didn't say, I try to be careful, you know, hear someone else preach. And the friends with us said, You know, that was 25 minutes of mere suggestions. well that was a bad sermon then if you just sit for 25 or 30 minutes and get mere suggestions it's a bit like somebody saying i don't mean to tell you what to do i'm just going to give you some pious advice and you can take it or leave it and so here asaph is saying god needs to speak he he needs a prophet who can just proclaim and declare it needs to be powerful did you notice why do you hold back your right your hand then he tells us your right hand because that's that's in the Old Testament that's the sign of the power of God that's him reaching in and doing his work we need you to speak we need you to do something with your power God take it from your fold of your garment and destroy them and so the speaking and even the activity of God is seen here so horrific realization it's too quiet we need God to speak and we need God to speak loudly and pointedly and clearly for us and so we do today as well and the last thing notice he goes from this horrific realization and and he's 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 back to to the honorable relationship. And he's not talking about the honorable relationship here of of Babylon to the Hebrews or even of the Hebrews to their God because their relationship to God at this time is not honorable. He's talking about the covenant relationship of God to his people. It's summarized right there. As, As we look, he begins in verse 12, Yet God my God is from of old working salvation in the midst. And then it comes to a very fine point in verse 20. Have regard for the covenant. That pretty much summarizes 12 through 23. Have regard for the covenant. Act, Lord, in relation to your people. We've been faithless, but even, as Paul said to Timothy, even when we're faithless, he is faithful. Asaph is not denying that they've been faithless and that Babylon has been wicked. But God, but God, he's saying, you honor, you honor your covenant. That's what we need. The God who has saved us, he goes through details, again, reflecting on God's honorability of his covenant faithfulness. Uh, You've been working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. And so he works through the Exodus account In vivid language, verses 13 and following. And then he reminds him again how the enemy is acting. And then again, have regard for the covenant. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the days. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. Remember, Remember, have regard—it's all the covenant language of the Old Testament. So, and by the way, in there, just you could have two subpoints under the honorable relationship: his honorable relationship to his people, and his honorable relationship to those who are not his people. You know, he does act covenantally, faithfully to both. He meets out justice. To his people and he meets out justice to those who are not his people we receive his discipline and his love they receive his punishment and his destruction but he acts honorably in both cases and so it's summarized there for us side by side verses 12 through 23 so when hard times come disasters discouragement destruction whatever chaos whatever happens in your, in our lives I think if we remember this psalm and these four headings and remember the proper place for honest reflection, for historical recollection, for the, it's time, it's, sometimes it's, you need a good horrific realization of what the thing, what's going on around you, and then the honorable relation of your God to you and to his people. And so whether, whether here you apply this to an individual, whether you apply it to a nation, whether you apply it to the church, which in this case in Psalm 74, all three are touched on. Those four little sections and those four points should serve us well in hard times. May God remember His covenant with us today and every day. Father, we ask you to do this for us because we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.